Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We all know we should do it, but about 31 million of us don't. I'm talking about exercise. This is Chapter 202 of the WCBS Often Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chankovich, and coming up, we dig deep into the history of women's fitness with author Danielle Friedman. Then we take a break and scroll through some emails and texts that is Janice Harlett's debut thriller, The Appeal. So how are you doing with that New Year's resolution? If you're like 91% of Americans, your goal is related to health, and I'll go out on a limb and guess most are determined to exercise more in 2022. But have you ever stopped and thought about the history of working out? You know, why we all do what we do and if it was always this way? Danielle Friedman has, and her new book, Let's Get Physical, takes us back to a time when sweating was considered unladylike, And doctors thought exercise would cause a woman's uterus to fall out. No joke. We chatted via Zoom. This is really a fascinating account of history of women and exercise. Besides, I know you're a woman who likes to exercise. What drew you to tackle this subject? Great question. And thank you so much for having me on. This book began about five years ago when I decided to take my first bar class, which was really my first venture into boutique fitness. And I am a women's health journalist and a feminist journalist. And I loved how strong the classes made me feel, but I also became really intrigued just by the larger bar subculture, especially because it seemed like many of the moves, um, the, all of the pelvic tilts and pelvic thrusts were geared toward improving women's sexual health. So I decided to investigate. One thing led to another. I discovered bar was invented by this fascinating pioneering woman named Lottie Burke in the late 1950s in London. And after writing about Lottie and her story for New York Magazine's The Cut, I decided to do more digging. And I realized there was a much bigger story to be told here of women's strength and empowerment and pursuit of self-determination from the 1950s to today. It's really crazy to me in reading some of these stories in your book, how long it took women to actually start moving or, or exercising or being accepted in exercise because of all these crazy myths that surrounded women's health. I mean, more than a 
few times you mentioned like there was this worry that their uterus was going to drop if they pushed themselves too far. And also this, this perceived ideal of, of what being feminine and a woman was like. You really did find that that's something that in every sport that you chronicle in this book, from yoga to running to jazzercise, it's something that women have had to fight up against every single time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there were these really deeply ingrained cultural beliefs about what women's bodies were and weren't capable of. Um, you know, the idea that women are the weaker sex, were the weaker sex, was very real <laughs> for much of the 20th century. And so, like you said, each of the pioneers was up against a, a pretty formidable set of boundaries in convincing um, both women themselves and the culture at large that it was both safe and beneficial for women to, to move in a vigorous, strenuous way. One thing that I just found fascinating was that until the late 1960s, there wasn't even medical consensus on whether it was a safe and be uh, beneficial for women to to move aerobically. Um, and there's another story there about about men's fitness. And actually, there were there were also some concerns about men overexerting themselves. But um, but that's another story for another day. Now that all being said, you don't shy away in this book from this mixed message of the female fitness industry, which is you know. Don't do it to be thin, do it to be healthy. And yet we're constantly bombarded by images of thin women being fit. And those are the women we see in the videos and in magazines, although that trend is starting to change a little bit, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so one thing I was interested in investigating in the book was the origins of the idea that exercise was a beauty tool. And it's so, um, those, those two ideas are so linked today. It's, you know, it's hard to imagine that it's, it's almost hard to, to separate them in our minds. Um, but I discovered that from the earliest days of contemporary women's fitness in the 1950s, um, many of the women's fitness pioneers were very savvy in that they recognized that selling strength for strength's sake would not have would not have worked. And so I, I describe it as like broccoli dipped in chocolate. They were selling strength, but under the guise of it being a beauty tool and a way for women to shape their figures, which made it palatable and acceptable um, in a society that, that uh, you know, was, was very wary of women becoming strong. Um, of course, uh, the damage, you know, the damage has also been done. And so that idea of fitness being a beauty tool um, was just sort of exaggerated and amplified uh, throughout the 20th century. And it, I, I, you might say it kind of, it hit uh, a fever pitch in the 1980s, especially when a fit body uh, and a, a body devoid of, of fat really became associated with worth um, and, and linked to one's one's worth and virtue. But like you said, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, um, um, we really have started to see the beginnings of a shift. And I'm always hesitant. I don't want to oversell it. But in the past five or 10 years, um, thanks largely to social media, there has been really intense pushback, um, thankfully, to the idea that women need to work out to uh, 
maintain a certain look and that fitness should be used, you know, primarily to achieve a certain very thin, rigid, heteronormative beauty ideal. Um, and so, yeah, we've really, we are seeing much more um, body diversity and a, a, a greater array of imagery when it comes to what a fit body looks like, as well as much more focus on the the mental and emotional health benefits of working out, um, which really comes down to encouraging women to work out for themselves uh, and not for anyone else's pleasure. And I think, you know, if you, if I, my friends, I'm sure your friends are the same, even ourselves, when most women nowadays will tell you they do it for the mental health yes. benefits and it's a good break for them and something that they do for themselves. And it's come, it's really has come a long way. It has, it has. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when my book begins in the 1950s, um, exercise was taboo, but then with more opportunity, um, it became for women, it began to feel not just like an option, but a requirement of womanhood. And, and then it became a chore, <laughs> you know, one more thing to add to the to-do list. Today, I think women are really reclaiming it. Um, and like you said, recognizing that it has amazing potential to, um, to just improve their quality of life. Um, you know, we talk about self care a lot today. And I think, I think women are getting savvier to what self care really looks and feels like. And I, and I think the key word is, is self and, and exercising, moving in a way that feels good for you. I appreciate too that you address uh, the elite nature of having time to exercise in your day as well, have the money because some of these classes, I mean, what they cost like 45, $50 yes. a class, but, and also the, the, the racist side of exercise and what it means to be fit and what it means to look fit and that whole beauty ideal. You don't get into it too much, but you get into it enough to, to realize that, you know, yes, we understand that there's a problem here and that still needs a lot of work, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, fitness requires, time and means and and just just the you know even a, a safe space to move which which millions of people do not have access to um and you know the research into the benefits of fitness is so um they the benefits just can't be overstated and so i think we need to do more to kind of rest fitness away from um, capitalism, for lack of a better word. And there needs to be greater, greater social support for, um, for bringing opportunity and access to more, more of the country. And, and I think, you know, like you said, fitness has been so historically linked to elitism, even with women's exercise, going back to before my book begins in the thirties and forties, it was something that, you know, very gentle classes were available to women at these, at these shishi salons in New York city, like Elizabeth Arden. And, and, um, and I, I, th I really see an injustice there. So I think also just shifting the way we think about fitness from being this performative activity that shows how committed we are and, you know, and, and, and requires a certain uniform to something that's just more about creating equal opportunity access for movement would really do us a lot of good 
as a society. And, you know, your book is obviously pro-exercise, but I really do get that sense from reading it and from the women that you've highlighted that it's more than about taking classes or being healthy. It's about creating a stronger bond between all women. Exactly. And um, some of the most moving stories uh, that I that I heard while reporting this work were stories from women who are now in their late 70s or 80s who started exercising when they were in their 30s or 40s at the beginning of the women's fitness movement and in many cases have exercised with the same community of women throughout their life and they talked about how they you know they lived lives their lives together and they experienced loss together and that um opportunity for community and social support i think is something that has not been fully harnessed yet um I, you know, I live in New York City and, and I have my, I have a running community here, which I really appreciate. But, um, but, but I think, you know, women's boutique fitness classes, there, there's more that could be done in, in bigger cities too, to kind of foster that sense of sisterhood and of cultivating strength together. Well, I hope that we'll get there. And I think if, if your book has proven anything, it's that women know how to get it done. And I'm just going to throw you, one quick fun question before I let you go. Yeah. We're talking about exercise. What's your favorite workout? Well, I love to run. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that's, of, of all the movements I talk about in the book, I feel like, I mean, running has a fascinating history, but, um, but there weren't, there weren't really leg warmers involved in running. And, um, yeah, I'm a runner. I love bar, but for, as far as retro workouts are concerned, um, even jazzercise, it's still going strong. So it's, it's not into, it's not retro, but the early jazzercise videos, which are available on YouTube, I have to say are just, are just pure joy. And anytime I need a little mental boost, I'll pull up <laughs> Judy Shepard, miss it dancing. And, and I feel 10 times better. Well, hopefully there's some women out there listening who are going to go do that, especially if they're still working at it at home because of the pandemic. Yes. Daniel Freeman, thank you so much for joining us today. And the new book is let's get physical, how women discovered exercise and reshaped the world. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're tired of scrolling through your own emails and texts, might I suggest looking through someone else's? In her debut thriller, The Appeal, screenwriter-turned-author Janice Hallett breaks free of the usual text and dialogue of the classic British whodunit to tell her murder mystery solely via the emails and texts of her large cast of characters. The result is an immensely entertaining and very fast read. 
She shared with me how she landed on the book's unique construction. It was a complete accident. I came to write this novel having been working as a TV screenwriter and I was in conversation one day with the um, head of drama at Sky here in the UK and I was talking about how difficult it had been to get any of my ideas on screen um, here in the UK. He suggested I write a novel. So I literally shut down my final draft um, script and opened Word and started on the novel. Now, I've been working on an idea for TV about a couple who arrive home in the UK having spent years volunteering as medics in Africa and how their experiences there informed their view of a fundraising appeal here in the UK. Uh, So I had that in my mind and I thought, well, now I'm writing a novel. How about I take that idea but use... um, emails between the minor characters going back and forth behind the main action and that was just that minor thought as I started the novel it shaped the whole thing and I'm so glad it did because I think what came out was something quite unusual. Do you think you can tell a lot of person by just reading their emails? Oh you can tell loads you can tell a lot about them and about how they feel about you or in the world of work how they feel about their job or their, their status in their, their own office. I think we, we give away such a lot by the tiny things we write and sometimes by the things we don't write. You know, it's really funny. You know how everybody always has this problem with text and emails where we kind of infer our own emotions or our own feelings, or our own thoughts and what we think that person is is writing to us. So it's really, it was kind of fun to be on like the outsider looking in because you know some of your own bias comes into it a little bit, but you're also manipulating us because you've written a novel with characters and you want us to think a certain way. You really kept us on our toes this entire book. <laughs> oh, that was certainly the idea. And I think that the fact I don't put in uh, any emails at all from key characters, we don't hear from them whatsoever. And that's quite, that also happened by accident. And um, it ends up, ended up being one of the most exciting things about the book for me. Right. We end up really learning about those, that, that couple you talked about through emails of other people, through frantic texts and everything else. Yeah. And, and also the main uh, focal character, Helen, we don't hear from her. And we hear once from Kel, one of the characters we hear, and it's such a powerful interview that we read from him when, when we finally hear from him. Um, yeah, it's, it really worked, that aspect of it. Now, community theatre really plays a central role. I mean, the, all these characters are connected via their, their local community theatre. And you call the book a tribute to those kinds of groups. What's your connection? I joined my local theatre group, the Raglan Players, when I was 14, although I'd been going to see their plays since I was three or four. And they would do pantomimes and I'd go to see them. So it's a huge part of my life. Um, I I continued being a member for 30 years. Now, I did every single job there was, from acting and directing, down to making the tea, you know, cleaning up after rehearsals. I did it all. And it's the most wonderful hobby. It's so immersive. And it's so all-consuming as well. It takes over your entire life, that this thing that you love doing and that you're so passionate about just it takes over everything and everybody there feels the same we're all working towards putting that play on and getting that response from an audience I think if you've done it you know and um, if you haven't done it well give it a go (laughs) 
There's this idea in the book about trying to give everyone a part in whatever the fairway players, you know, are putting on that year. And it kind of feels like you've written a book where everyone could have a part. Do you know, I've never thought of it that way before. <laughs> you're you're totally right. No, you're absolutely right. And and in the appeal, the minor characters are the main players. Most plays have a very small cast, uh, and most drama groups are fairly large. And they often have people who end up not getting a part, play after play after play, um, which can be a problem for some groups. Uh, so yeah, it is quite nice to bring them to the fore. These people who don't get a chance to act very often. Now you've really gone and written a book that. I would imagine would be really hard to adapt into TV or the screen because of the way you've set it up. Was that ever at the back of your mind? Because here you are as a screenwriter and you've gone and written something that would be really hard for you to do. (laughs) I have to say it was always kind of at the back of my mind, even though once I started, even though I'd adapted the idea from a screen idea, I didn't really stick to what I thought it would be on the screen. I did let my imagination run wild. But, yeah, I've been working on um, a pilot for it. And, uh, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, you know, it will be on screens at some point in the future. You never know. That'd be really fun. It also feels like it would have, you know, such this British mystery sensibility because of where it's set and and, and how it takes place and how it unfolds. Oh, it has a real... um, aura of Agatha Christie about it, even though it's in this modern format that she would never have recognized herself. I mean, it's it's a whodunit, and, and can you guess whodunit? That's, that, it's that vibe the whole way through. The book's really been a runaway hit after publishing in the UK. What's that experience been like for you? It's been amazing. It's, it's been an escalation, I think, from because it was published a year ago in the UK, and since then it's snowballed as, as people because it was right in the middle of, a, of the pandemic lockdown. And so it wasn't available in shops. It was people buying it online, reading it, recommending it, buying it as gifts, and everybody recommending it to a few people. So it was word of mouth uh, those first six months. And then the paperback came out in July, and that was Book of the Month in Waterstones here, and that really um, set that ball rolling. So it's been an escalation that's been wonderful to watch unfold. It's really an amazing experience. And imagine a small part of you are hoping it might follow the the, the same uh, trail here in the U.S. when it when it comes out. I think next week or in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, the twenty fifth. Oh, well, I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. You know, you know, you never know, but you know, fingers crossed. So I know this is your first novel. I hope it's not your last. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's not my last. Actually, Good. <laughs> it, Good. it definitely isn't. <laughs> I've uh, um, the Twyford Code is my second novel. Uh, that's out here in the UK um, Thursday, uh, Thursday the thirteenth, um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, hopefully that will be just as exciting. Oh, that must be so cool to have uh, you know these the these two books, one that's already such a success back home, coming out to a whole new audience, while also making sure that that first audience of yours has has something to to keep them busy. Yeah, it's, it's really weird that there's an exact year between the two and that there's the next one coming out. Because I, when I do interviews and speak to people about it, I have to think, which book is this? Which, <laughs> is it Twyford or is it The Appeal? Um, so, yeah, it is, uh, it's lovely to – because I'm having had the experience of the UK and what readers are looking for in the book and what they get from it, to know that before going into the US launch is also quite a privilege uh, that doesn't always happen with books. So I feel quite privileged to have that um, a year's foresight. 
Well, that means I have something to look forward to next year, although maybe I'll uh, I'll work those publishing connections in mind and try to get myself a copy of <laughs> a UK copy oh, of you your You never next know book. your luck. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> That's <laughs> Yeah, that'll be out uh, next, uh, 2023. All right. So, listen, we've got a whole year in front of us. Who knows what it holds? At least it'll be something <laughs> to look forward to. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, thank you very much. We've been talking to Janice Hallett. The new book here in the U.S. is The Appeal. Thank you for your time today, Janice. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's been lovely. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, love is in the air as we dive into some romance novels perfect for that upcoming Valentine's Day weekend. Until then, show us how much you love us by following us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.